Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. So my name is Shannon. I'm the executive pastor here, if you didn't know me already. Um, Steve is back from his trip to Wisconsin. Pastor Steve is. Um, and if you didn't get the word, uh, his mom did pass away last Sunday. Um, so they had the, the wake and the funeral this week. And just with all the travel and all of that, um, he didn't have time to prepare things. So um, he asked me to fill in for one more week. Um, so I, I hope you're excited about that, or at least tolerant. Yes. Well, um, yeah, don't applaud yet. So, um, so last week uh, we spoke uh, from the book of Mark. Uh, we're in a series there, uh, just going through scripture by scripture. And last week we talked about sin and hell. And that was a tough message, um, tough to hear, um, but I think some good truths in that. Um, and I was pretty sure this week was going to be something about pillow fights and puppies, but um, it's not. It's a tough week, uh, probably even tougher than last week. So just be prepared for that. We're, we're on the topic of divorce today. Um, so be warned. Um, I, I, I wrestled with it all week in, in how to present some of these things. Um, and how do you how do you improve on God's words, uh, on Jesus' words on the topic? But um, we recognize at the very least that it's a painful and sensitive topic for everybody. So um, just know that, that as we go through this, it's with understanding of, of those situations. I think in the middle of digging into this truth, though, uh, we're going to fasten on a couple of God's most important priorities right in the middle of it. So um, I, I hope you glean some good things from it. Um, just to start us out, I'd love to read through the scriptures we'll be covering today. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 16 today, um, and you can follow along or um, listen along as, as I read it. So our scripture today. And he left there, Jesus did, and he left there and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Just by way of a little bit of context here. Oh, I turned it off. Just by way of a little bit of context here, uh, I've got a, a, a map. I don't know how much you can see on that. I apologize. I did throw that in the, uh, late this morning, so uh, Margaret usually does a better job with it. 
the upper body of water is the Sea of Galilee. The lower body of water, water is the Dead Sea. Um, and where the disciples have been previously is up by that Sea of Galilee uh, coming from Capernaum. And now they've moved down into Judea and actually then crossed back over east of the Jordan River to Perea. Um, so just to kind of give you an idea where they're at, and we'll, we'll come back to this map here in a minute. Um, but as we dig into the scriptures uh, with a little more detail, would you pray with me? Father, you know it's my prayer. Every time I stand up here, Lord, that, that you would be magnified and I would be minifi- minified, <laughs> minimized. Lord, uh, the words that I speak um, that are of me, I pray you'd, you'd have them diminish. And um, Lord, the, the, the words that your Holy Spirit draws out and impresses upon us, I, I pray that they would increase. Um, may this be about you, your glory, uh, who you are, and may we be able to understand you better through this word. Uh, we pray that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Minified. Wow. I, I wonder how many of you, if I hadn't said anything, would actually use that later this week. Probably nobody. All right, so again, Mark 1, uh, 10, 1 through 2, um, uh, the first section we'll look into. He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So again, um, coming from that, that region up uh, uh, by the, the Sea of Galilee, where most of his ministry to this point has been, um, they've now moved down into Judea, and then again uh, over into Perea. Um, and, and as Jesus moves closer and further south, closer to Jerusalem, it's the the beginning of the wrapping up of his ministry um, and his time and, and heading towards Jerusalem and the ultimate end there. And around the Sea of Galilee, his teachings there, um, he was teaching both people and he would take some time and teach specifically his disciples. And uh, uh, that's where we were last week. Um, but now he's coming back and he's, he's teaching to the broad, uh, broad group, his, his teachings to the whole people again. And the Pharisees, they, they approach him in, in this place. Um, and we know that the Pharisees have been pretty upset with Jesus for a while now. Um, he, he has brought to light and begin to um, uh, pull away some of their influence over the people. Um, he's been in direct confrontation of their control of uh, the Jews there. And he's threatened their power, power structure. Their whole way of doing things is incompatible with his preaching on the kingdom of God. And so they're a little upset at him. Um, and, and in this, even geographically, we start to see some of their subtle and vile plans being played out. And let me explain this a little bit further. Um, we've, we've heard of Herod. We, we understand King Herod. Um, Herod Antipas was a kind of a sub-ruler. He was under the authority of the Roman government, and he was working with them uh, or under them to manage some of the groups in the, Israel, the, the area of Israel. So he was given governance over two particular parts, and it's the lighter shaded stuff on the map there, um, up west of the Sea of Galilee, and then Perea, which is east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. 
those were where he was uh, the authority and ruler over the Jews there. And if you know anything about Herod Antipas, we talked about him earlier in Mark uh, with John the Baptist. Um, Herod had had divorced his wife, Vesalius, to marry his brother's wife, Herodias. And through that, John the Baptist uh, openly condemned Herod's behavior and called him out publicly. Um, Herod, being a typical ruler of the time, imprisoned John and then allowed himself to be talked into John's execution over that issue. And I have no doubt that the Pharisees, these are smart guys, um, they came to where Jesus now was in a region under Herod's authority to bring up the same issue. They know that Jesus and John are linked And if maybe they can get Jesus to take the same stance as John, maybe Herod would be able to follow the same course of action and do away with with Jesus before his ministry even gets fulfilled. It's a pretty evil plan, honestly, um, in their approach to this question. So they ask this testing question. It's a a question meant to force him into a no-win situation where if he answers true to form, Herod's going to catch wind of this because there's a large group of people, there are many witnesses, um, and do their job for him. Just as a quick aside here, um, testing God is doomed to failure. Trying to manipulate the Lord into accepting our desires as if he doesn't know the whole situation our hearts or his own plan or it's going to fail. And we see that on display here again. They ask a simple question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, interestingly, Jews of that day were almost unanimous in agreement that divorce was lawful. The debated issue wasn't whether you could divorce. It was the, what the proper grounds for divorce were. What, what grounds were, were there that made divorce allowable, allowable? And I'm sure, depending on his response to this question, they had some follow-up questions that would further spring the trap. Um, and, and again, in the presence of a, uh, many, many witnesses. Jesus answered them. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus, in his typical way, knowing how cunning these guys are, what their true intentions are, he sidesteps their methods completely and he shifts the burden of defining the law back on them, which probably ultimately is what they wanted all along, what they really desired. And he asked them a question. What did Moses command you? And it's interesting the way he phrases that. What, is Mo, what did Moses command you? You see, Moses was their authority in this because they were law-focused. They were human-oriented. God wasn't their authority. That would mean they'd have to examine their hearts and they'd have to be oriented on God's commands, not just on the law that Moses gave And so their answer comes framed in this legalistic view. 
Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. This particular law, uh, like many others, originated in the Old Testament. And this op- often debated question among them for the grounds of divorce originated in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. We'll just look at a little snippet here. It goes on further. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And again, it goes on from there. But this is where that I, the idea of finding some indecency in her came from. So the question then is, what constitutes something indecent? Even among the teachers of the law, probably even among the ones present here, um, the teachers of the law that day in that day were divided on this point. Some held that indecency was uh, literally adultery. That that was the cause for uh, grounds for divorce. But other people had a more subjective view, uh, allowing dis- general displeasure to be grounds for lawful divorce. So, if Lisa is a poor housekeeper. I'd be like, yeah, that doesn't cut it for me. Sorry, we're done. That is true. Not the, not the we're done part, but... <laughs> um, most of us have been affected by divorce in one way or another. Um, even in Bible times, uh, the human side of it's complex. It's painful. It's destructive. And it carries an enormous component of the difficulty of relationship. And it raises a whole lot of questions about property, about children, about income, about future relationships, etc. And this particular question the Pharisees ask, um, ask is loaded with cultural bias as well. Can a man divorce his wife? In this time, a man could marry. A man could divorce. A woman was given in marriage. A woman could, under certain circumstances, petition the uh, court to divorce, uh, but it was only a man that could freely initiate it. Even in that, there were some protections for a woman. Uh, A man that wanted to divorce his wife had to formally secure the divorce with a written certificate that couldn't be redacted, and and it granted total freedom. Um, and they usually sought that through the Levitical priests. Uh, it wasn't something that they could just print out on their, their uh, printer at home. <laughs> but that's the, the, the Pharisees' basic response to Jesus' question. It, it's nothing more than a summation of what De- Deuteronomy 24 already says. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was the letter of the law. But we know Jesus isn't exactly a letter of the law type of guy. He doesn't question the law here or reject it. Uh, the Bible uh, later tells us that he's the fulfillment of the law. But he does focus on some deeper stuff here. And it's this hard stuff that he has to address. So we hit this point, And we've got the setup to the meat of the passage. We're, we're, we're just past the introduction now. We've had the first kind of exchange and Jesus is going to go into a teaching moment that's not just for the Pharisees, but for everybody that's present. Um, 
And as usual, he is not shy about pointing out error and speaking truth. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them, male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So instead of reviewing the law, Jesus goes back to the original source. He takes God's perspective and he goes straight to the heart of why. And uh, I think it's interesting too that he includes the Pharisees in the accusation. Your hardness of heart. God didn't institute divorce. Man did. People came up with divorce to solve issues of broken relationship. And much of the law of Moses has that same root. When you look at the law of Moses, God didn't institute murder. Man did. God didn't institute capital punishment or war or rebellion or disease or poverty or any of the other things that we consider controversial and that we lay at his feet as an accusation against him and his goodness. God didn't do those things. Man did those things. We talked about sin last week. The root of sin is man's willingness to tell God we know better. A hard heart towards God. I I know you know this, but in the beginning, God had a plan. He created according to his plan and purpose. He set things in motion consistent with his priorities. He created the hamster cage first. You're thinking, what? Let me explain. When I was a kid, we got a hamster. Um, it was wonderful. My, my dad got this book on pocket pets, and uh, we were so excited to, I don't know why they call it a pocket pet. Don't put it in your pocket, kids. <laughs> um, but we, we got uh, one of those glass aquariums. Uh, we actually made a screen lid to fit on it because uh, we couldn't find one at the store at that time. We bought all the, the cedar chips for it. Uh, we got a special food dish for him. Uh, we found a few things for chew toys and put him in the corners and stuff and set his cage up perfectly. Got the little hamster wheel on the side. Um, we created his environment first. And then we brought in the object of our affection and put him inside that's what God did when he created. He made the hamster cage first. He created the world, the earth, um, populated it with wonderful things, filled it. Um, he, he created the universe and this amazing environment for the object of his affections. He set up the home first and then added the occupants. He created man. Why did he do that? I mentioned that we're going to hit a couple of priorities, um, and this is the first one. Priority number one, God wants a relationship with us. It was our purpose for being created. I don't know why he wants a relationship with me sometimes, but he does. 
He, he, he wanted that bad enough that he created Adam and Eve and everyone after that. God wants a relationship with us, and it's reinforced in the Ten Commandments even. Um, the first being, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God desires companionship, fellowship with us. Um, we just had a fantastic worship time. Um, but we can't worship without relationship. A realistic, intimate knowledge of God is crucial to our desire and ability to worship. I'd say that worship is a more serious, focused version of relationship. Um, I, I get a, a regular weekly newsletter from one of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp. He talks a lot about relationship stuff. And uh, I came across this this week, uh, and I, th- I thought it actually applied surprisingly well here. Um, so this is the snippet that I took out. Uh, and he says, I started to think about how the Ten Commandments work. There's no escape in the essential order of God's commands. The first four commands have to do with one thing and one thing alone, the worship of God. Why are they laid out this way? Because only when the worship of God rules my heart will I set everything else in my life in its rightful place. Joyful, perseverant obedience only ever grows in the soil of worship. So Adam and Eve had the ultimate setup for continued relationship and worship with God. And I often wonder what things would look like if Adam and Eve hadn't made those choices, choices and ushered in sin. What would relationships with each other look like? What would, what would our relationship with God look like without that corruption that sin brought? When that first choice of my will over God's will was made, when Adam and Eve wanted their eyes to be opened and be like God, their relationship um, with him, his first priority was forever damaged. And this is the moment that Jesus recounts, that creation moment. And if you've read in John 1, don't forget that Jesus was present at creation and that the act of creation actually came about through him. He was there when this happened. And he says, God made them male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. He knows that better than anybody. Marriage in its plan, in God's original plan, is simple, plain, and obvious from the very beginning. It's the first institution established. And I often forget this about marriage. It is one of those things that was established and predates sin. That was God's plan for us if we hadn't sinned. That brings us to priority number two, God's priorities. God desires marriage relationships to further illustrate his relationship with us. Few relationships have the ability to reveal the inmost depths of our heart, both the good and the bad, like marriage. Real intimacy can uncover so many things we didn't know about ourselves. I thought I was a kind and patient man. 
marriage shined a light on an anger that I kept in the back room of who I was. That intimacy also reveals more about the character of God through another person's eyes, eyes and experiences. I can taste his mercy, his love, and I can see the influence of the Holy Spirit in dynamic ways in Lisa's life that are beyond my own interactions with him. And Jesus says, said, What God has joined together, let man not separate. The hardness of, of heart in us breaks down relationship with each other and with him. Breaking a covenant relationship, breaking a relationship designed by God isn't good. In modern times, just like it was back then, a partner can be victimized by their spouse. They can be victimized by divorce. I'm not saying that being divorced is sin. I'm saying that divorce is caused by someone's sin. Even without divorce, Wives can sin against their husbands. Husbands can sin against their wives. Spouses can sin against each other. None of it's good. And God sets rules and boundaries with divorce, just like with so many other of the sins listed in Deuteronomy. That doesn't mean it's good or okay. The people, they needed to recognize, and the Pharisees, recognize that what they felt justified in doing was not according to God's plan for his people, and it impacts their ability to have relationship with him. Jesus makes this statement, and there isn't any further response listed by the Pharisees, no comebacks, no questions. Um, there, there's nothing from the crowd. Um, we don't know what the rest of that time looked like. But I'm sure there was plenty going on internally in their minds, if nothing else. What Jesus said was the ultimate word on the matter. Uh, I have one of those study Bibles that has some study notes in it on each section, and, and I thought uh, it f- uh, framed up what we're talking about quite well in this statement. It says, Divorce was an accommodation to human weakness and was used to bring order in a society that had disregarded God's will. But it wasn't the standard that God originally intended. The law was not to make divorce acceptable, but to reduce the hardship of its consequence. And even though that's, that's Jesus' ultimate word on the matter, um, later on it says later when they were um, back home, the disciples brought this conversation up again and he added some additional thoughts to it. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorce her, divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Over in Matthew 19.9, um, it records a slight addition to Jesus' words in, uh, in Mark. It says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Um, I don't know about you, but when, when it comes to sin, I try to convince myself that uh, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm better off sometimes. Um, there aren't these dire lasting consequences like the ones we talked about last week. If you're like me, you try and justify your wounding of another person by claiming she made me do it or it wasn't my fault or she deserved it anyway. 
Jesus points out here that the victimization in divorce continues on to the newly created relationships by literally creating adultery in the new relationships. Breaking a marriage does damage to another future family, and that's laid at our feet as well. It's a pretty sobering statement. And in this, too, Jesus makes two distinctions uh, that a lot of the Jewish culture didn't think was possible. The first, a man is in the wrong in initiating divorces with his wife. They had taken the law of Moses to the extent where all he had to do was find a clerk to write out a piece of paper and that that was okay. The second, a woman can initiate divorce and be in the wrong as well. That's not something that they recognized before. So divorce, hey. Um, Can we move on to a happier topic? How about kids? That's pretty harmless, right? Uh, I'll probably ruin that too for you. Verse 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such as belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. People would often bring their infants and toddlers in this day to the religious leaders to be blessed. And I think of it a little bit like our baby dedications that we do here. So there's the obvious issue of the disciples limiting access to Jesus, uh, making assumptions about who and what's important and worthy of his time. And again, we see them get slapped down for it. But in this passage, we can draw a clear line to the passages we've used before and just went through to see another one of God's priorities. It's priority number three. Children are integral in God's plan of relationship. In Genesis, God's repeatedly seen encouraging his people to be fruitful and multiply. If you thought living with a spouse was easy and you have this relationship thing down, have a child or five. Um, I don't know if you guys know the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Um, He's a pretty hilarious guy. He has five kids of his own and uh, he he had a bit where... um, he talked about somebody asking him uh, what it was like to have five kids. He said, well, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. <laughs> Nothing will test the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Peace, patience, gentleness, etc., like a child. Um, Just another interesting thing. God gave the ability to procreate to Adam and Eve before they made the choice to veer from God's intentions. One of the consequences of of sin was pain in childbirth afterwards rather than ease. So he set them up to be able to have kids. God's plan, even before sin and death became a new reality, was for children and families. It makes you wonder what what the world would look like if that choice hadn't been made. 
Now, with this, with this priority, with this point, I'm not saying that if you aren't able to have kids that somehow you're incomplete or less valuable. That's not what I'm saying. Obviously, God has a special plan for you and in your situation. But the point here is that divorce thing that we've talked about, it destroys this priority too. And tying together these two passages in Mark and the three priorities we've highlighted, um, let's take you to the book of Malachi. Uh, Steve did cover this not that long ago when we were in the book of Malachi. It says, Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. God says that breaking faith with your spouse disrupts his plan for creating faithful, godly children. And ultimately, it's breaking faith with him because he's been part of that marriage from the beginning. So we focus on on divorce and the damage there. But let's be honest with each other. It doesn't take divorce to be faithless to our spouse. And it doesn't take divorce to disrupt God's plan for godly children and lead them astray by our poor examples. And it doesn't take divorce to break our relationships with God. The sin we harbor in our lives does so much damage to us, to our family, and to the Lord. And anytime we, we bring up divorce and unfaithfulness and breaking faith, I'm reminded of God in the Old Testament and how many times he called out the Israelites um, in their actions, in their behavior, and they're turning away from him. And he called his chosen people adulterers. Not because they had poor marriages, but because they broke covenant with God again and again. Just in the last chapter at the end of Mark 8, Jesus called the people an adulterous and sinful generation. The entire book of Hosea is an object lesson God takes one of his prophets through by having him marry a prostitute to illustrate to his people how he sees their treatment of him in spite of his faithfulness. So let's just remember that married or not, God sees the things we make as idols in our hearts and elevate an importance above him. He considers it divorcing him and his covenant with us and that we've become adulterers. Sin is a horrible disease among us. In spite of that choice of sin that Adam and Eve made that corrupted everything, everything we know and see, And in spite of the sinful choices we make where we choose my way rather than God's way, in spite of that, God created a way to repair the situation. And this, in a lot of ways, blows my mind when Jesus, who was the instrument for perfect creation and in a system of beautiful relationship, um, he's there creating perfection. Um, it's amazing to me that he chose to sacrifice to take those sins and the punishment and do them. I, I, th- I think of just my own stupid little examples. Uh, my boys and I used to love to play Legos together, and I would make these cool things to impress them, and they would destroy them. And <laughs> it would be so frustrating. Has anybody here seen the Lego movie, right? Okay, that's me. I, I would, if I could, I would get the crazy glue out and fix that so that they couldn't do it. 
if, if anybody has a legitimate cause for bitterness and vengeance, it's Jesus. We broke his stuff. But instead, he paid the price in our place. So when we accept forgiveness, and God looks at us, he sees the image of his son rather than my brokenness. Jesus steps in front of us and says, no penalty needed. He's mine. She's mine. That's redemption. Making us worth something when we're anything but. No matter what's going on in your marriage, in your singleness, whatever your situation, wherever you've had a hard heart in the past and chosen your way over God's, he forgives. You've been redeemed. And God didn't stop there with renewing and redeeming broken things. He took marriage, the institution, and what had become totally broken and far from his intentions, and he added another layer of meaning to it. Out of Jesus' sacrifice came the church. The church came into being. Those who chose to follow him were bonded together in relationship as brothers and sisters. The church is called his bride, and he's the bridegroom. Many of us go to Ephesians when we're looking for some commentary on marriage. Ephesians 5 has references to submission and love and respect, things that challenge us. And honestly, every time I've gone there, it's for the purpose of looking at human marriage. But that's not what the passage is about, and it says so. And we know this. So I did something a little bit weird here. I took some liberties with Scripture. I apologize now. I actually talked to Steve about it, and he said, yeah, no, that sounds great. So um, I I, I redacted some things from the word just to help us understand and see the marriage of Jesus to us and, and set aside those human things. I took some chunks out. So I actually, because I never get to do this stuff, I actually did a redaction in my notes. So I, it kind of made me feel like I have a secret document or something. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to read it without, without the human marriage references and just look at that passage as Jesus and the church. And it's something beautiful. Parts redacted. <laughs> Be subject to the Lord, for Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. The church is subject to Christ in everything. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that we might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason, the two shall become one. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He he redeems us. He redeems our marriages. But even more than that, he set up the redemption of his people 
and the way that we can come together in relationship to him. So we've looked at this as a specific issue, uh, the issue of divorce. divorce. Divorce law was a band-aid on cancer. Sin wrecked marriage and everything, or, and family, like everything else it had touched. Broken marriage reveals a hard and faithless heart and destroys my ability to have godly children. Jesus is looking for us to keep faith with our covenants and fulfill his original promises, his original priorities. That's looking at the specific issue, and those things are true, but there's a bigger issue here as well. When we've divorced God, the Mosaic Law was a band-aid on sin. Sin wrecked our relationship with God like everything else it touched. My broken relationships with God reveal a hard and faithless heart and destroys my ability to have godly fruit in my life. Jesus is looking for us to keep our faith with our covenant and fulfill his original promise and purpose. So have you let him redeem your marriage? Have you let him redeem your family? Have you let him redeem you? I'm going to call the worship team back up as I wrap up the thoughts here. I encourage you, seek redemption and accept it. I know that there's people here that don't believe God can or will accept them because they're beyond redemption. That's a lie. You can read his words on it. God is loving, kind, patient, good, faithful, gentle, and in absolute control. Don't limit God's absolute power by thinking that somehow your choices cancel out his. No matter the depth of selfishness we've wallowed in, the ways we wound and damage others, no matter the number of times we've broken relationship, gone our own way, chosen to go back to the sins of control, pride, anger, lust, Jesus' sacrifice is greater. His His greatness is greater than our badness. And it's simple. Accept his sacrifice. Agree to his terms and surrender leadership to him. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the hard work of eliminating that sin in your life. And it's awesome. God doesn't take a break. He's always working to restore relationship with us. We just have to turn to him. When we do that, nothing can hinder us coming to him. We're like the children of his kingdom, and he wants us. Just like those kids that we talked earlier, I talked about earlier, he desires to wrap us in his arms. No matter what the world says, he'll lay his hands on us and bless us. Would you pray with me? Father, we admit that in so many ways we're, we're broken people. We bro- have broken our relationships with each other. We've broken our relationships with you. And Lord, we, we recognize divorce is, is, is a bad thing. But we've divorced you. We've gone our own way. And so we seek repentant hearts. Uh, we seek your redemption. Lord, we talked about worship earlier 
and we recognize that worship is an extension of our relationship with you. So would you just solidify that relationship? Lord, we, re- we know that your son is always working and pursuing this. May we, as a body, as your bride, recognize that and join you. We pray that in his name. Amen.